Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Susan Hall, the publisher for our in-house NLA publishing. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and thank their elders past and present for caring for this land that we're now privileged to call home. We're very grateful to our supporters for making this evening's event possible. In particular, we thank the Australian Government for supporting the Treasures Curator through Catalyst, the Australian Arts and Culture Fund. We also thank our National Library patrons, supporters of the Treasures Gallery Access Programme. Our collection houses many fantastic artefacts from Australia's Indigenous history, and with them we can try to piece together how it was to live in communities past and try to see from their perspective. To tell us more about the library's Indigenous collection, primarily what we have on display in the Treasures Gallery, is library curator Matthew Jones, who will also introduce our other guests. Please join me in welcoming Matthew. Now, I was told not to touch the microphone, but something about it just makes me want to jostle it around a little bit. Thank you, Susan. Um, I too, before I begin, would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of their land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this beautiful place that I'm very privileged to call home. So I work in the exhibitions branch here at the library, where we develop exhibitions and displays, which we hope uh, will enrich the knowledge, understanding and appreciation of the collections of the library. We have two major galleries here. The Exhibitions Gallery, where we mount temporary exhibitions based around a single theme, story or collection, and the Treasures Gallery. So before I introduce John, Victoria and John today, I'd like to take 10 minutes to talk about the Treasures Gallery and the collections that we display there. The Treasures Gallery opened in 2011 and presents visitors with the opportunity to come face to face with many of Australia's greatest stories. It has been designed and custom-built as a permanently accessible space for the library's rare and fragile and most important collection material. The main section of the gallery is Terra Australis to Australia, an episodic narrative of the European mapping of our continent and Australia's post-contact history and development. Central to these displays has been material relating to Indigenous lives. The central part of the Treasures Gallery consists of two exhibits. One features material relating to Captain Cook and his three voyages. The other focuses on the hard-fought, decade-long legal battle, now simply remembered as Mabo, which ended in 1992 with a landmark ruling that recognised Indigenous land rights. In 2001, the Mabo case manuscripts, which feature Ed Eddie Koiki Mabo's papers and those of his lawyer and friend, Brian King Cohen, were inscribed on the UNESCO Memory of the World Register at the same time as James Cook's Endeavour Journal. The papers were described as a rare instance in world history of pre-existing tribal law being formally recognised. Over the years, we've displayed a range of objects from these papers, including legal documents, maps, paintings and journals. Both in terms of space and themes, I think the rest of the objects in the Treasures Gallery kind of orbit around this central axis. They're all, all in some way touched or informed by those two central stories.
Over the last six years, we've displayed many more objects in the gallery relating to Indigenous lives and culture. Many of these, especially objects dealing with the early decades after 1788, are representations of Indigenous people by non-Indigenous people. Much of this material is informed by prejudice and misunderstanding. However, as John Maynard, who's here tonight, and I'll introduce him soon, has shown in his excellent book on Lycett, True Light and Shade, which is on discount in the bookshop at the moment, so do yourself a favour, there is still so much to learn from these images. Lycett, a convicted forger who arrived in Australia in 1814, was unlike most early colonial artists in that he depicted rituals and customs of Indigenous people in active control of their lives and land. Also in the collection are these watercolours by William Westall, and they are valuable records, and we also have displayed these in the gallery. Westall was a landscape and figure painter on Matthew Flinders' investigator expedition to New Holland. During his visit to Chasm Island in the Gulf of Carpentaria, Westall made the first European depiction of Indigenous rock art. Other images in our collection that we've displayed, such as this one, use very European tropes of portraiture to create powerful and unforgettable but also very complex images. In this portrait of Desmond, which is the only name we have for him, from 1826, the English artist Augustus Earle uses a low viewpoint, placing the viewer in a subordinate position to the subject. Now, this convention was usually reserved for depictions of members of the British aristocracy and military, but increasingly in the late 18th and early 19th century, European academic painters were using such strategies to represent Indigenous people all around the world. Other than this portrait, we have no knowledge of the sitter. Also, little is known of Tallboy, who lived in far west New South Wales, 200 kilometres north of Broken Hill. Tallboy would have been assigned the European title of king and given this king plate to wear, presumably for supporting behaviour towards, for supportive, pardon me, behaviour toward European settlement in the region. King plates were derived from military insignia and originated under Governor Lachlan Macquarie to assign authority to certain Indigenous persons. Today, they are mainly viewed as emblems of an attempt to impose European cultural values. Another potent symbol of the early interaction between the two cultures is the Governor Arthur proclamation panels. As the European settlements continued to expand throughout Van Diemen's land, violence between European settlers and Indigenous people intensified. Governor Arthur proclaimed martial law in November 1828 to force Indigenous peoples away from settled districts, a policy expanded in 1830 with the notorious Black Line. Ill-conceived by government surveyor George Franklin and tied to trees and distributed to Indigenous leaders, the proclamation panels were intended to, quote, make them understand the cause of the present war, end quote. This is one of the seven panels uh, still remaining in collections around the world. Other very significant items in the gallery that we've displayed and are still on display include the Tommy McRae sketchbooks. McRae, Yakandunda, um, was an artist from the Wiradjuri Nation in Victoria. His work reflects both the traditional way of life and the realities of colonial settlement. Having worked as a stockman, McRae made a comfortable living from his art, refusing to move from his land and worked easily between these two conflicting worlds. His unique figurative pictorial style appealed to squatters and travellers who bought his sketchbooks in, uh, in droves. More recently in the gallery, uh, we have curated a display on Indigenous rights in the 20th century. 
Currently on display is this watercolour by our auntie man, Albert Namajura, one of Australia's most celebrated artists. These watercolour paintings of country in central Australia are noted for the rich use of colour, their rich use of colour, and command of the interaction between light and landscape. Sorry, I couldn't resist it. Um, his skill is evident in this painting of the Glen Helen homestead showing the West uh, McDonnell Ranges in the background. Um, now, due to his artistic fame in 1957, Albert Namajira and his wife Rubina became the first Indigenous Australians to be granted full citizenship rights in 1957. Um, we've also put together a display on the 1967 referendum with help of NLA staff member Yanti Ropian and um, our colleagues in the education branch. It includes items from across the library's various collections, from pictures, manuscripts, the Australian collections and our ephemera collection. Now this is part of a larger project to mark the 40th anniversary of the referendum at the library, which includes special videos in the library's digital classroom, as well as a series Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander collection conversations. And these are all available on the library's YouTube channel, so check it out. Also in the gallery, at the moment is the first edition of We Are Going Poems by Ujuru Nunakul, formerly Kath Walker, who is a leading Indigenous poet and political activist. In the 1960s, as Queensland State Secretary of the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, she actively lobbied for Aboriginals to be given full censorship. Her poetry gave voice to, a, to the campaign. With the publication of her collection, she became the first Indigenous person to publish a book of poetry in 1964. So, I hope that's given you some insight into the library's varied collections displayed in the Treasures Gallery that address Indigenous lives and themes of first contact. I also hope it's inspired you to continue to visit the gallery in the future, or, or perhaps maybe for the first time. Um, to see the material that the staff at the library continue to uncover, acquire and interpret. Now I'd like to introduce our three speakers for the main part of tonight's event, which will be a discussion about first contact through the eyes of Indigenous people and the Europeans they adopted into their families. Joining us tonight is Professor John Maynard, Professor Victoria Huskins and Director of the ATSIS Foundation, John Paul Yankee, to help us see from the perspective of Indigenous people during their first encounters with Europeans and how they navigated through these new circumstances. Professor Maynard currently works at the University of Newcastle in their Indigenous Education and Research Department. John has spent his career trying to fill in the gaps in history where Indigenous voices have been neglected. He and Victoria have collaborated before for the National Library. They are the co-authors of an NLA publication, Living with the Locals, which you can also find in our bookshop. Victoria Haskins has come from a long line of activists for, in, uh, for Aboriginal rights. Her expertise in the shared history between indigenous, her expertise, pardon me, is in the shared history between indigenous and non-indigenous people. And hosting tonight's event is John Paul Danke, a descendant of both the Miriam Mir and Wuthathi people. John Paul has worked as a journalist in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs for nearly three decades. His long list of professional achievements include working for ATSIC, the Sydney Olympics, and the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. He is a member of the National NAIDOC Committee and a director at the Australian Indigenous Leadership Centre. Please join me in welcoming John, Victoria and John. Thank you. Thank you. 
Oh, good evening. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm John Paul Jenkins, not to be confused with John Maynard. Uh, <laughs> the only thing we have in common is that we're both soccer tragics, <laughs> and the older we get, the better we were. So tonight, <laughs> if we diversify and go into our soccer skills, please, it's up to Vicky to bring us back on track. Yeah. But look, firstly, let us, uh, on behalf of uh, John and Vicky, acknowledge country and acknowledge the elders past and present. Um, and it's great to be on uh, Ngunnawal and Nambri country again. And also acknowledge you guys for coming out on a beautiful, crisp Canberra winter day. I think the fog lifted at about 2 o'clock today um, <laughs> and the sun went down at about 4 o'clock. So yeah, our plane was yeah. delayed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but tonight what we're going to do is we're going to uh, unpack the book Living with Locals. Uh, I'm going to try and tease some more information out of John and Vicky about some of the fantastic stories that are in the book um, and give you a greater insight into why they wrote the book uh, some of the, the characters they profiled in the book and maybe come up with some uh, world-changing conclusions at the end. So I think we've got about uh, 20 to 30 minutes. He says looking at the timekeepers. Okay, so we'll, we'll try and keep you on track for that. Um, the first thing I really want to ask, having read the book, is how did the book come about? Well... Well, we can both comment on this, but to start with, I mean, I have to acknowledge the library, certainly um, Susan Hall and, and Joe Carmel. I mean, I'd done the book on Joseph Lysett, and I was down here and was invited to coffee here at the library. And this is Joe's baby, I mean, as far as the, this particular project was concerned. And, um, and Susan and Joe asked me if I'd be interested in, you know, researching this particular topic and, and writing a book on those early people who got shipwrecked, lost, um, or just ran away into the bush. Um, and I said, yeah, look, I'd be interested, but I think it would be better if we had an Indigenous and a non-Indigenous um, view, viewpoint of these, these people. So I, I mentioned my wife, Vicky, in, in regards to that, and Joe and Susan thought that was a great idea as well. So I went back and, and said to Vicky, what do you think? Because I will say for us, it's rare that we get an opportunity to work together. We're both extremely busy and although we've, you know, our interest certainly with Aboriginal history and Australian yeah. history, even world history, yeah. um, is similar, it's very rare that we get an opportunity to work together. So we were quite excited by the, the, the prospect of that and, and jumped at the opportunity. I mean, yeah. that's where it come from. And I mean, you don't want to add yeah. anything to that? <laughs> oh, just when um, John came home and, and told me about this, I was really excited because... Uh, I've always been really interested in these stories and I teach a, a, a course in cross-cultural history and, you know, I have this sort of couple of weeks where we go through quite a few of these stories and I was like, this is fantastic. I'd love to see a book come out on this and I'd love to be part of it. So, mm. yeah, I'm very excited. So there are, there are 13 individuals profiled in the book. Did you find, were those 13 limited to the amount of content you could... Uh, find about individuals? Well, the, the project was connected with the library's collections. I mean, we've had a lot of people say, oh, you've missed someone in Western Australia, mm -hmm. you didn't do this person here, but, you know, we've explained to people, and certainly through a lot of radio interviews as well, that it was tied to the collections here and what the information was here. And we, and I, I just want to say that, I mean, from the library's perspective, we had fantastic support. Mm. I, mean, I mean, we spent time down here 
and also we were just able to ring up and get people to search for material in regard. So it was confined to the collections here at the we library. We also, uh, when we first started, we came down to the library um, together and we spent quite a bit of time looking through the material and then we both did a couple of trips individually <coughs> um, and then we sat down and looked at what we'd managed to pull together and how we're going to write the book and we decided at the time we'd build it around individuals. Mm. So that meant that we put aside stories where there just wasn't enough material about an individual mm. but where we could really construct a person and get a sense of who they were and where they came from and to s some extent get an idea of you know their outlook on life and how Aboriginal people or Islander people might have seen them. We thought that that would be the way of running the, the book. Mm. All right, so the, the, the 13 individuals... Um, they're amazing stories and narratives about uh, their journeys into Indigenous Australia, but yet, probably apart from Eliza Fraser, they're actually unknown stories in Australian history. Um, one of the, the overwhelming sense that I got through reading the book is that we weren't told about these things. Mm. Um, mm. And I actually felt sort of robbed or, mm. you know, Australian history wasn't completely told to me. Yeah. Um, did you find that as you were going through unpacking these detailed stories of the individuals, that the thirst to find out more and to tell their story uh, took over? Oh, yeah. For, for me, I, I, like I said, I taught um, in this area, so I already had kind of like a reasonable grasp of, of quite a few of the stories. But I, what I was really trying to do was really try and find out as much as I could about what actually happened. And what you find is there's a whole lot of cultural stuff about you know the way it's represented and the way it's been imagined but when you go down to find out well what actually happened the real stories are very interesting um things like eliza fraser that you mentioned um she's so well known so mm -hmm. many people know eliza fraser and then we worked we spent ages trying to work out one where she actually went which was pretty difficult <laughs> but also how long she was there and she, mm. we worked out she couldn't have been with aboriginal people at the very longest, six weeks. At the very longest. And, and, you, you know, know so many so written material, books and films and yeah. have concentrated and on Eliza Fraser. She had such limited time actually spent with And then Aboriginal there's people, people. like um, Buckley, who was for 32 years. Yeah, and yeah Moral and Moral and, and Barbara Thompson. Yeah. You know, yeah. all these people long spent of time. really long time. But I, I will say to JP, mentioning that about how we were deprived of that history, I mean, for myself, certainly as an Aboriginal kid growing up in the 50s and 60s. That's probably one of the big drivers for me in the sense that I come through a school system where there was nothing about Aboriginal history or culture in the school curriculum or being taught in the 50s and 60s. It was extremely limited. There wasn't a lot of support, certainly for me, in my school years in regards to that. Mm. So, And coming into, um, well, academia as a mature age student at the age of 40, I was driven to, you know, and I've always said our... our our indigenous history of this country is like a giant jigsaw puzzle with a lot of the pieces missing and playing a part in putting some of those pieces back into the puzzle has been the driver for me. And it's the same thing with this particular project that was so interesting. I was aware, like Vicky, of some of the stories, you know, a good, a good few of the stories, but um, there's also for us how these stories were constructed and written early on. They were certainly from well, a non-Indigenous perspective in many instances. And for us, and certainly for me, it was unpacking that 
and trying to put an indigenous understanding back into what was actually happening at this particular point in time. Can I just jump in there? Because you just saying that makes me think, how did I first hear about them? And I used to work at Cornstalk Bookshop, which is an antiquarian bookshop, and I, w- I was given like the very fun job of cataloguing all their Aboriginal collection. And that's where I came across um, the Charles Barrett book, which we, we used quite a lot. Mm. And that was published in the 1950s, I mm, think. Mm, mm, mm. And that had a collection of stories. Um, and that's probably where I first learned about it. But they were really told in that 1950s ripping yarns yeah, kind mm, of style. Mm, mm, so mm. we had to kind of write against a lot of that as yeah, well. Mm, mm. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, look, some of the characters in, in the book. And the, the book opens with a fascinating story mm. of probably the first wild white man to mm. go into Aboriginal Australia. Um, John Wilson yep. or Bun Bowie. Bun Bowie, yep. Um, now he he goes off and lives with the Darug people on the Hawkesbury River mm. about six or eight years after the first fleet arrived. So mm. he's the first white man to go rogue with <coughs> Aboriginal people. Um, importantly, he comes in contact with a great uh, Aboriginal warrior. Mm. And John, this is uh, one of your favourite stories, so maybe you can tell us a bit more yeah, about Yeah, yeah, well certainly um, Bun Bowie or Wilson, certainly um, when he became free, I mean it, they, the British were, were certainly put off because they said, now the, the accounts were that he, he seems to prefer to live with the blacks and away he went, you know, and he, he spent a lot of time with Aboriginal people there and, and certainly Pemelwoy was one of the people that he came into contact with, although in regards to that there was fairly limited material in regards to the, mm. the Pemelwoy connection. But uh, one of the, the, the fears the British had was with convicts or, you know, people that had, you know, would then went out into the bush was informing Aboriginal people that certainly British guns weren't as effective as what they... Th- certainly the noise of a gun and, and shooting someone, certainly alarming as that was. But with someone like Wilson, Bun Bowie, saying that, look, it takes them an awful long time <laughs> once they've fired that shot... Mm. You know, and if you distract them and draw their fire, well, then they've got to reload this thing and it takes quite a bit of time. So there was a real issue for the British at that particular time. And a number of um, others went with um, Wilson as well Mm. at that particular time and certainly the guerrilla campaign that Pemelwoy instructed, which was very, very effective um, at that particular point. But he wasn't the only one. I mean, there's there's, um, early convicts who taken boats and finished up at Port Stephens yeah. and had mm. children there and um, and there was a white woman who was perceived to have, you know, gone to live with the blacks and that alarmed them as well. I mean, so they sent yeah. out search parties which became a, a common feature in later in later accounts as well as the you know, the missing white woman in the wilds who's got to be rescued. Mm. So, so, so Bunbowie goes to the Hawkesbury, lives, yep. a, lives a couple of years with the Durham people. Yep. And then he comes back to uh, the colony. Yeah, he came back. He, he he came and went a number mm. of times, and he was then. It was certainly um, there was trouble with the Irish um, um, mm. convicts at this particular yeah. time who got into their idea that if they went for X amount of days marching or off into the wild, yeah. they could reach China. <laughs> so there was lots of the Irish yeah. taking off into the wilds, and um, the British were alarmed by this. And then with Bun Bowie uh, Wilson. Um, they thought it's really good if we take an expedition out and actually take some of these Irish um, prisoners and show them that there is, you know, no route to China 
and and, and uh, Wilson was a, was, a, was a guide to that. And um, but they took a couple of expeditions, which you know we went out to like what is present day Penrith, and mm. we went out there mm. looking for salt. We found, found salt, salt. Found yeah. salt. Um, you know, which and is very important. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. At that particular point in time. So, but he was very effective as a, that was recognised as well. That he was a great guide and knew the country and his connection certainly mm. with Aboriginal. So people. salt is obviously important because they could preserve, preserve their food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Wouldn't have to rely on cargo coming. Yeah, yeah. Cooking. Does John Wilson learn any Darug language, or does he invent yes. his own sort of? Yeah. Uh, no, well, I mean, we, we we certainly hypothesise that he had to have learnt language. I mean, but um, well, there there's was also that, there was that story about how he was trying to convey to the when the when the, he was first sort of encountered by the British ship they, he was trying to explain to them that the <coughs> Aboriginal people were very unhappy with what was going yeah. on so mm. they think he was um well we we think he was probably the, the Aboriginal people probably saw him as a useful intermediary mm. so they wanted him to speak more. speak a broker mm. across the divide so mm. to speak so yeah and that you know you'd, you'd recognize that as a you know an important you know, connection, and and the first the first chapter, which is carried through all the way to the book, uh, brings up the the way that uh, white people would move into Aboriginal communities, and it was this notion of uh, reincarnated relative. Mm. Yes, yes, um, and that, that's followed throughout the whole of the book. Mm. And uh, John Wilson pretends that he is the son of a quite a uh, famous woman in the in the clan. Mm. Um, and he's accepted as her... Uh, we see, you say he pretends, yeah. mm. but that was Collins said that. So David yeah. Collins was a big officer of the colony, mm. and he's the only one that we've got for John Wilson. He's the only... Okay. Source. Source. Yeah. And he was, a, he was a very pompous person. He's quite annoying, David <laughs> Collins. <laughs> and he really didn't like um, Wilson at all. Mm. And, you know, he thought he was an idle young man and so on. And so he scoffed and said, oh, he's tricked these poor, um, you know, these poor woods natives. Because the British also decided that the, the Aboriginal people that they were friends with on the coast, Bennelong's mob yeah. and all that, so they were the smart Aboriginal mm. people. And the people along the Hawkesbury were not so smart because they weren't friends with the British. <laughs> so, so then he decided that Wilson had tricked the Hawkesbury Aboriginal people into thinking that he was a returned dead person yeah. and that he, and he actually, <laughs> Collins said that he thought Wilson got this idea from the fellows who went up to Port Stephens because they were regarded as um, deceased, returned relatives. Mm. But it's the timing was wrong because <coughs> Wilson was already involved with the Aboriginal people before the... Um, fellows from Port Stephens came back. Mm. So it's just Collins. Yeah. It's yeah. just Collins saying that. Yeah, and it is a recurring theme, and certainly that um, Aboriginal people clearly did yeah. see that, that connection, and there's a, quite a number of accounts in regards to that. Yeah, yeah. But, we, but we have to sort of... When we were writing, we always had this problem with this white perspective, perspective that was very right. dominant, mm. that really all the time wanted to see white people either as, you know, kind of tricking Aboriginal yeah. people and somehow, mm. like, you know, mastering them, or if they <laughs> clearly weren't doing that, like Buckley, <laughs> then, well, they must be completely stupid. Yeah. They could never <laughs> sort of, they could never kind of just give Indigenous people credit for being, you know, like, reasonable yeah. human beings, so. <laughs> and, and throughout the, the 13 stories, there's very limited uh, 
exposure to weapons. So a lot of the survivors who were either shipwreck survivors or marooned mm. didn't have any weapons. Do you mm. think that that was uh, part of the process of being invited into Aboriginal society because they didn't have the weapons which either the, the coastal Aboriginals would have seen through the Marines? Um, so there was a lot more friendly dialogue from yeah, well, first contact. In, in many of these instances, it was the first time Aboriginal people were meeting mm. you know, mm. whitefellas. So they had no idea of... Yeah, the, the weaponry of or the result or the carnage that could come from something like that. So, yeah, yeah, um, there, there is that. I mean, again, in uh, many of these instances, these people were completely dependent on Aboriginal and Islander people who saved their lives. Mm. So that was the that that's the really important thing here. So I don't think there was that real. Yeah, you know. and they they were. I mean, John's compared them before to refugees mm. because they were, you know, they were shipwrecked often. They were oh. often starving. They were really like in dire straits. So you know, they were kind of, they were being rescued really. Mm -hmm. um, so that's quite different from people who are out exploring with guns. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, these people were in desperate straits in many in many respects, uh, you know. But a lot of the time the white people are initially really frightened of the yeah, Aboriginal yeah, people. Yeah. They're really frightened yeah. and they often think they're going to get eaten. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're, <laughs> they're always like and, in this default position. And what happens to John Wilson? Well, he, well the, 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 the story at the end is that he was speared, you know, for a transgression. Um, but that was Collins. That was Collins again. So <laughs> did that really happen? We, you know, you, you have to try and work your way through that. That um, he'd done something um, uh, and broke Aboriginal custom or law over women, over a fight with another guy over women. That's the story mm. coming from Collins, and he was subsequently speared. But, you know, we've just got to weigh that up again coming from someone yeah. like Collins. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, Eric Wilmot did a novel about Pemmelwai, which mm. you might know. Mm. It's quite a famous book. And in, um, and in his reconstruction, he had um, John Wilson being killed in an attack on the Aboriginal group. Yeah. So, um, but there's the only... All that we've got is David Collins saying, oh, he is no longer with us because he got speared in the middle of, like, you know, misbehaving. Mm -hmm. And then you go into the... the, the chapter two is a, the great story of William Buckley. Yep. Um, around 1803, yep. uh, the newly formed colony of Port Phillip. Yep. Down on the coast of uh, Victoria. Yep. And he spends uh, some 32 years... 32 years, that's right. ..with the Wuthering people. Yep. And again, that story is not well known in Australian history... Um, yeah, well, he's probably one of the better known, you know, well, uh, less known amongst the wider, yeah. you know, audience of Australian history, but, uh, you know, Fraser is clearly the most celebrated, most known. But, um, but um, Buckley is just a remarkable character and figure. I mean... So um, how does Buckley end up down on the coast of Victoria? Yeah, well, he and another... It's five, five mm. convicts, I think it was, that they, they take off from the uh, Port Phillip and uh, escape in the bush. One of them gets shot... And they go tramping along the coast, and the other three then say, "Oh, look, we're we're going to go back." And Buckley goes on alone, um, and he just lives on the coast on his own till he's found by three Aboriginal men. And I mean, he's a big guy; he's over six foot. He's a, he's a giant of a, a figure. He was actually in the British military himself before he was um, found guilty of st well, they convicted him of stealing a piece of cloth, which he always said he, he was not guilty uh, of the crime. But um, 
He was then taken in by Aboriginal people, but he, he picked up from a grave site a spear of a you know, major warrior. And this is where you know, he, he became known as um, Murunga, you know, which was the, the name of this warrior, because when he came back, they all thought that, OK, it's, he's returned. Yeah. You know? And then it was the process of learning language, and they were amazed that, you know, obviously he's forgotten all, all his skills when he's died and come back and had to be re-taught. Mm. But um, he, um, he just fitted in so well with, with community in regards to that. But the Buckley story, the accounts that came later, was, again, the way these stories were written really sensationalised. I mean, there was stuff about cannibalism and Aboriginal warfare. And uh, one of the things that certainly with the warfare that has you know, struck me, and, and, I'm sh- um, and same with Vicky, was, um, and it's appeared in a number of accounts, that uh, there was 150 Aboriginal men in um, Buckley's group and 300 from another tribe, and it was a major yeah. battle, you know, and, you know, that all these blacks were, you know, in this incredible battle. But when you go through the material and Buckley's account, only three people die. <laughs> you know, three people die in this massive battle. What sort of battle mm. is that? Clearly this mm. is um, Aboriginal law. Someone's broke the law. And certainly you can see that with Lysett's images in that book as well, where uh, there's an instance of a person who's broke the law. He has to stand up with a, um, a, um, a shield and dodge and duck spears being thrown at him. And for me, this is a similar thing that was happening down there. I mean, you know, you don't get three people dead when there's 450 in a complete battle. Mm. And, and it was the same thing with the, um, the, the cannibalism accounts as well that, um, that like to highlight um, and sensationalise that Aboriginal people and Islander people were, were cannibals. And there are some accounts of, you know, some, some of that stuff. But in this instance here, um, and it was, what's his name? Was it Bazado? Um, in Central Australia, yeah, it was yeah. the mortuary, right? The, the, the mortuary um, accounts of that if a great warrior had died, they did sort of cut off a piece of flesh and that was consumed as if to keep this person alive. They weren't going out killing people, then cooking them and eating them. You know, it's a, you know. Mm-hmm. So he spends how long? 32 years? 32 years. Yeah. And yeah. he mm-hmm. learns a language? Yeah. Um, and the book unpacks each. Uh, experience then in um, in the same sort of criteria. You didn't talk about customary rights and uh, how those people perceived yep. the custom. Yep. What custom and ceremony does he bring back uh, to the white colony? Yeah, well, th- this is this is an interesting thing with many of these stories. He clearly went through initiation process. He could speak the language fluently. He became a great hunter as well. You know, so in regards to that, he came back at the time when. Batman's group mm. arrives down there and mm. that's when he walks back into the non-Indigenous world and a- appears back on the scene and he's certainly perceived at that point, and it's a bit like Bun Bowie Wilson, this person from the British side can be used to connect and barter connections with Aboriginal people. So there was that, but he didn't say a lot about those cultural um, initiation processes and there was a lot of this you know, this is, you know, secret stuff. or you don't, mm. you don't speak about that sort of stuff. So there was things sort of raised as uh, directed towards Buckley. I mean, that again, what Vicky said, he's got to be stupid because he doesn't know mm. anything. 
without mm. recognising he wouldn't speak about it. Mm. Mm. He did, um, he, he was very scathing of the whole um, Batman Treaty. Mm. He was like, no, no, this, this, the Aboriginal people have, they're not giving you that country. That's, mm. That isn't what's happening. Uh, and he was quite an advocate for Aboriginal rights too, to the extent that he got driven out and ended mm. up having to go to Tasmania. Yeah. yeah, they forced him out because that was the, they wanted him out of the raid because he was so outspoken on Aboriginal people and their rights. So certainly mm. settlers there, they didn't want him there. And then we move into uh, the Torres Strait. Yep. And we have uh, John Ireland and William uh, Dolly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, who in 1836 were rescued, were, were rescued, sorry, in, they spent nearly two years in the Torres Strait yeah. uh, before being rescued in 1836. And their story, the way you tell their story, they actually have some really good insights into island custom and the differences between the islands and ceremony. Mm. Yeah. And they moved around across the Torres Strait from Murray Island mm. to Darnley Island and various other islands. Mm. Um, maybe just tell us a bit about their story. Mm. Well, they're, they're, a, they're one of the most difficult stories we had to deal with because, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, sensational stuff about cannibalism in, in their story. Mm. Um, so how did they end up in the Torres Strait? Uh, they were on it. They were, there was a large ship. Um, ship, ship. With yeah. there, was, uh, there was about four young boys on it. Um, there was two, the two orphans who were the doilies. Yep. The two, uh, they were the, the children of the... Military. Um, was passengers? Yep. Yeah? Yep. From India. Yep. And then there were the two cabin boys. Um, there was a shipwreck and <laughs> the survivors from the shipwreck ended up on this island and they got picked up by some islanders who took them to another island and then massacred them. Mm-hmm. And they killed everyone except for the boys, boys. Yeah. The, the young boys. So um, <coughs> we had to look at what was going on there um, and looks to us as if it might have been a retribution massacre from some previous incidents that, that's happened. And we speculate that the, perhaps they left the boys alive because they were so young, mm. because all the adults got killed. Um, and the people that they were living with then um, didn't treat them very nicely uh, from their accounts, but they got integrated into... There's a very elaborate trading culture in the islands, so the different groups um, trade different things. Mm. And they ended up in, in this situation where they got moved from one island to another through different trading voyages. Mm. Uh, some people, the Arab Islanders, mm-hmm. I think it was, the mm-hmm. Arab Islanders, yep, yep. Um, Dapa, yep. uh, came and bought them for yep. a bunch of bananas. <laughs> bought the two surviving boys. So one of the do- bo- doily boys survived and one of the... Um, um, what was the other one? William. Uh, William O'Doyle. Yeah. William O'Doyle and, and John Ireland. John Ireland, that's yeah. right. John Ireland's the old... John Ireland's the cabin boy. And the young boy, William Doyle, he's only about three or four. So the other two ended up disappearing. Um, but these two got got adopted and then they got treated very well and they yeah. got completely integrated in, yeah. in. And they didn't want to go back. They didn't when, want to go back. When yeah. They got forced back, particularly the littlest boy yeah, he was, ha- because yeah. he'd been completely integrated into the, into the community. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was crying when they... Took him off yeah, he was he was devastated. Uh, and Wacky John, and you us. Wacky and you us. That's yeah. it. 
So John Ireland ended up writing a little book about his experiences mm. and he really put a lot of emphasis in that book on how, how well that they were treated and said that he was writing this book uh, as a message to whites to um, really mm. deal well with Islander people. But, of course, the message that got taken up was the original massacre instead. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. so yeah, that was probably the one, one of the stories that I found the most difficult yeah. to yeah. deal and, with. And again, with this story, you, uh, John, it's something you picked up, you said before, is that there was a protection of culture and yeah. the yeah. cultural rights that were provided to them. Yeah. Um, but they seemed to hold back on their story. A bit. Yeah, mm. there was a lot of that, that throughout a lot of these stories. JP, so mm. it, it was a recurring theme through the stuff as we were, uh, you know, putting it together. So yeah, but again, as Vicky said, I mean, those those boys didn't want to go back. I mean, that's the, how how the acceptance that it had into the families and the culture up there. And uh, again, as Vicky said, the the really young fella. Yeah. Yeah. Which mm. brings us to the the well-known story of Eliza Fraser, yep. mm. um, shipwrecked. Uh, after spending some six weeks with <laughs> Aboriginal people yeah, yeah. At, at best. Um, yeah, yeah. On, the, on the present day Fraser Island, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which I think most people think is named after her, but it's actually named after the husband. That's right. Yep, Fraser that's Island. Right. Um, can you tell us a bit more about her story? Oh, so she's because there's, there's many, many different accounts of Eliza Fraser. Um, there's a, an Aboriginal account of her, so one of the few. Um, people that, you know, you asked me earlier about oral histories, there is an Aboriginal oral history of Eliza Fraser. Um, so it's trying to, like, put all the... What, year, what, year, what years are we talking about here? 1836. Mm -hmm. So um, she was on a merchant ship <coughs> and the uh, sh shipwreck ended up... There was a, quite a lot of them, actually. There mm. was a... You kind of imagine Eliza Fraser on her own, but there was actually, like, Heaps Something like heaps on them. Like this. <laughs> and when they went on shore, they made a raft from the ship and got on shore. She took two trunks of clothing with her. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? When I started going through it, I was like, this is really weird. But it come in handy. It well, come in handy. You, <laughs> have this, you have this great quote in your book where you say, it's hard to imagine what the local Aboriginal people made of these white strangers from the sea with their inability to feed themselves and their seemingly inexhaustible supply of sewn clothes and yes. bags, <laughs> which they offered as currency for fish. Yes, yeah. so yeah. they dragged these these things ashore. They were totally scared of the Aboriginal people. They didn't. They actually had a fight. The, her husband fought with the crew because the crew wanted to land, and the husband was like, "No, no, there's Aboriginal people we're there. We can see their fires." And the crew were like, "We're landing." <laughs> so okay, we're going to take all these clothes with us because then we can trade them for food. And it ended up in this incredible farce, really, where she says they had guns and they held the natives at bay, but somehow the natives kept throwing them bits of fish. fish. And <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, you just... And they they were like, well, we're going to trade you clothes. Mm. Reciprocity yeah, going on here. Yeah, so here's clothes. And the Aboriginal people would take the clothes and then hide them away and then come back. But eventually... They'd it got, got quite hostile and the, the survivors didn't know what to do. They s ended up splitting up into two groups that were fighting amongst themselves. themselves. They all sort of set off down the, down the shore trying to walk back and they started to get harassed by Aboriginal groups all the way down. And they kept getting 
attacked for their clothes, <laughs> which is even stranger. Yeah. So they kept trying to trade clothes and they kept getting like basically beaten up and give us some more <laughs> clothes. And there's one particularly funny scene where two of the guys that went off separately, um, you know, were like, okay, here's our underwear and everything. <laughs> they just end up sort of on the, standing there naked and, and then they start to, like things start to get a lot easier once they stop the whole here's some clothes yeah. business. Yeah. But they ended up getting surrounded by what it looks like a sort of consortium of tribes. Mm. Um, gather them all up in one place and then they start splitting them up into groups mm. and they all get sent off to different groups. Mm. So it looks to us like the Aboriginal people were watching them coming down going, what are we going to do about these people? They did have some contact with whites already, so there was a, already some hostility there. Um, but Eliza Fraser, they leave on the beach all by herself. So all the other survivors are male. They all get taken off. She's left on the beach by herself. And then all the accounts pieced together, a group of Aboriginal women come down to the beach and surround her and start throwing sand, sand. at her <laughs> and laughing hysterically, which Eliza Fraser finds very traumatic. Um, and then they set off back into the bush and really there's nothing much left for her to do, so she follows them. And eventually they take her to this woman who is an invalided woman who's um, somehow quite wounded, um, ulcers on one side of her body, and she's got two young children. And Eliza Fraser's basically said, you, you hang out with her and yeah. help her. You've got to help this old woman. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, oral, the Aboriginal oral history says that the people started to pass her down and the women were um, covering her with um, stuff to protect her from, from sunburn. Sun. Mm -hmm. And they also put markings on her to say she's not to be harmed, but they wanted her to go. They wanted to move her down. Mm. Um, and so she keeps getting sort of like moved along. And we kind of worked out she's getting moved all the way down Fraser Island, then across to the mainland. Um, and she's at the mainland when the um, party that's looking for her come, finds her. And they find her because a couple of the other survivors managed to get back. back yeah. And so this party comes up. And then there's a whole lot of different stories about who actually rescued yeah. her. Mm, yeah. But one of, the th one of the things that I really liked was finding the account by the guy who's officially credited with rescuing her that no one else thinks did. <laughs> but he wrote this really wonderful essay about his rescue of her and it's so poetic to read. It's mm. incredible. And it's like, this is a convict and he's mm. writing this incredible stuff. He was a... Um, he had lived with Aboriginal people and he was very obviously integrated with Aboriginal ways. So he had all this kind of, this very hybrid kind of writing about, um, you know, tracking down this, this white woman and bringing her back. Mm -hmm. So she, she makes it back to civilisation. Why do you think her story uh, was so attractive to the non-Indigenous community. Oh, it's um, again the sensation. It's the white yeah. woman being mm. with the savages in the wild, and I mean, you know, surviving that particular story. I mean, and there are the number of accounts that come out. Those sensationalised ones. The, as Vicky was, you know, really um, connected with the first account where she was interviewed, 
in herself when she was brought back was mm. was the the most soundest one to go on. Yeah, mm. so she she when she was first returned, she gave a statement about her experiences and it was quite low key. Mm. She actually spent more time talking about how horrible the crew were <laughs> than the Aboriginal people. Mm. Um, but she did say that they treated her horribly, the Aboriginal people. She said they wouldn't let me in their huts even when it was raining. <laughs> Which I found quite <laughs> sort of, <laughs> I found quite kind of pathetic, really. <laughs> so she spent six weeks uh, on Fraser Island. At the at, most. At, at, the, the, most. at, at the, the most. But uh, it's very hard to pinpoint it. We yeah. think maybe more like four weeks. So the, uh, another documented sh- uh, shipwreck survivor is Barbara Thompson. Mm. Yes. And she spends about five years mm. uh, living with uh, the Karalug people yep. Yep. just above Cape York Peninsula yep. Yep. Um, after being uh, shipwrecked. And she is later discovered by the rattlesnake, HMS Rattlesnake, yeah. the party going through. This is Vicky's favourite yeah. story. Yeah, but Barbara Thompson's my favourite story. <laughs> so um, she's, yeah, she is a, she's a real interesting character. So she um, migrated to Australia with her family as a child. Um, her father was a, a, a Scottish man, mm. um, some kind of trade, I can't remember what it, off the top of my head what it was. <laughs> But um, she was only about six when they came to Sydney and lived a very hard life. Mm. Um, Her father ended up in jail at one point and she ran away from home to get married and this was probably about the age of 12, Mm. uh, which really stopped me in my tracks and I had to spend quite a lot of time looking up what the laws around yeah, marriage and things were at that time. Age of consent was 10 years old, wasn't it? Yeah. Age yeah. of consent was 10 at that time in the mm-hmm. British, under mm-hmm. British law and marriage was 12. Mm. So, girl, and working class girls had to survive in those days. Um, but anyway, so she runs away with this fellow and they go up to Moreton Bay mm. um, where Brisbane is just starting up at that time and he hears a, from a guy about a wreck up in the in the Torres Strait and um, says, let's go up and salvage it. And so this is another little insight into that time period that this is how people kind of got by. Mm. They would go to shipwrecks and take stuff Stuff, off them. Salvage crew. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And it was kind of semi-criminal activity too. Um, So up they went and got caught in a storm and everyone drowned except for Barbara. Mm. And some, there were some Kaureg men fishing. They were out turtling. It was turtling season. And they called out to her to, to wait and just hold on to the ship. And then when the storm passed, they came out and brought her over to their island. Um, and she was immediately adopted by an elder there called Pequi, mm. who was quite a senior man, as his um, daughter mm. who died. Mm. Uh, and... Then she, she, so she was only, she must have been about 13 or so at that time. Um, and then she was lived with them for the next four years and had this very happy life. Mm. Um, and then when she was found by the rattlesnake, so unlike Barbara, uh, unlike Eliza Fraser, no search party was sent out for her or anything, but um, there was a surveying ship going around the top of Cape York and... Mm. The crew had actually stopped uh, at, at Cape York, so they're not at the island. Um, they were doing their washing mm-hmm. and so forth. And they ran into her. Now, she already knew they were there because all the islanders knew that the whites were there and she begged to be allowed to go over and see them. So she did want to go back and, and see the white people. 
Um, and so that's how she came back to them. As soon as, as soon as the Whites found her, that they were completely stunned to find this gorgeous seventeen-year-old girl. <laughs> so they made quite comments about, "Oh, she's not bad-looking," you know. So that was interesting <laughs> too. Um, and they said to her, "Well, do you, do you want to come back?" And she s- appeared to be very ambivalent about it, but she basically said, "I'm a Christian. I, ha- mm-hmm. I have to come back." Um, the people that she was with weren't particularly happy her about brother, her going. Yeah, her brother, they didn't want her to go. To lots, lots of people were coming onto the ship and they were saying to her... They thought that she was being kept prisoner on, yeah. the, mm. on the ship and they were trying to encourage her to leave. Um, but uh, she went with them. But the, the thing about Barbara Thompson was she got on really well with the ship's artist mm. and she told him lots and lots and lots of stories about her life with the... Um, Carreg, and mm. he wrote them all down, and it's like a, mm. it's like a full-blown oral history mm. of her life, and it, she's got this great voice. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think Susan's going to tell us. Yep. Sorry. We've got to wrap up. <laughs> um, thank you to uh, all of our guests this evening for this fascinating discussion, and we just have time for a couple of questions. I thought I'd leave five minutes in yeah, case that time yeah. went by anyone wanted to I mean, ask some questions. Um, <laughs> If you'd like to raise your hand, someone will bring you a microphone. And if you, if you don't mind waiting for the microphone, that would be helpful. So do we have any questions for any of our guests this evening? Thank you, that was fantastic, really, really interesting. Um, I I was just interested in the the story about William Buckley Mm. when he returned and, as you say, the the non-Indigenous population were kind of not happy about the message that he was bringing from the the way those interactions were going. Mm. Was there ever ever any sense that an option for him was to go back to the Wallerong? I mean, I think he says at one point, I mean, mean, it would be far better off if the land was returned to them and Mm. everyone left, you Mm. know. So, I mean, that was was his comment. He did go back with a couple of groups and and he was... The the people there with him recorded the point that the Aboriginal people were just absolutely in raptures that he'd returned again. There was lots of hugging and talking and it's like a family member has returned. So clearly there was a very, very strong connection um, for him. And I think like a, quite a number of them that um, Buckley in Tasmania died later on in life I mean, as a lonely man you know, and he married. Mm. But um, he obviously must have been so frustrated and disappointed and looked back on that incredible 32 years of was a very rich experience and lifestyle. Mm. Yeah. They don't seem to go back, mm. the ones that we look at, and I think that's partly because by the, the, like the frontiers moved on. There's nothing yep. to go back mm. to. Back to. It's that's like, you know. Mm. I think they, they recognised what was coming. Mm. I mean, and, and certainly Buckley was able to see the bang, the impact. Well, moral of, was really yeah, strong mor- on that Moral too. was very strong on that. <coughs> yeah. I'm a Melburnian yeah. and uh, I've had a bit of an interest in Buckley mm. uh, from some time back. Uh, 
There was a saying, you've got Buckley's hope. Mm. I think it comes from Buckley after he came uh, away from the Aboriginal community and he was around the early settlement, mm. a confused, as people saw him, mm. and uh, isolated man. And uh, I see a pattern in your stories that uh, the impact that these people that had experience with Aboriginal people uh, is related to their status in the settler society. Mm. Um, Fraser, what's her name? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, was obviously uh, high up in that society. Mm. So she had a great impact on this, what she had to say, whereas Buckley was probably never very well educated. Mm. He was a convict, I think, when he went bush, so uh, you know, he whatever he had to say would not have much impact. Mm. And likewise, the young children in the straits. So, mm. Uh, mm. so that's the pattern I see that mm. uh, the people of higher status mm. uh, that had experience living with Aboriginal people mm. um, had more to say that the settler society uh, would take notice of. Mm. I think Buckley is sadly um, portrayed as not being intelligent, and he's certainly from a, you know, a lower rung. But I mean, he was a British military man, a sergeant, fought in the Napoleonic Wars, and the reality is, from my understanding, um, you know, he was quite intelligent, you know, and quite smart. And his reason for not talking was the reason that we've spoke about before that he and Buckley's. Um, um, Buckley's choice, or what was it? With, um, Buckley's chance. Buckley's chance was has been discredited as being connected with yeah. that with Buckley. Actually, it's more of a. Um, there's some word for it. The way that you get different anecdotes fused, mm. so that the Buckley's chance. that expression comes from another story, which I can't remember off the top of my head. But Just they they kind of fuse. Fuse, yeah. Story. So it's 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 tied to William Buckley. It's become tied to mm. William Buckley. As, More a, than fact. as you can understand why, because it just seems like... <laughs> I think, too, there's, there's humour in some of these stories oh, as well. The, yeah. the, the moral one. I mean, you've got the, the British there that have been wrecked and suddenly there's a big group of Aboriginal people come over. So the British, just the, these, these people that survived, surrender. They put all their hands up and the Aboriginal people said it, and they surrender too. <laughs> <laughs> It's got to be some sort of custom going on. So they've got this picture of these two groups standing there with their hands in the yeah. air. <laughs> so, but there's there's lots of stuff like that as well. Yeah, yeah. one of um, in the Eliza Fraser story, one of the white guys who is the only one that has any kind of positive experience of the Aboriginal people. He he's, um, says he like works out how to talk to them, which is just to sit beside them and comment on how they're laughing um, so we have these sort of visions of this man sitting at the fire and this Aboriginal people just sitting around laughing and then going <laughs> I'm getting on with them now <laughs> um, unfortunately we've now run out of time but I hope you've enjoyed yourself this evening like I have um, and I encourage you to visit the Treasures Gallery of course which is open daily from 10 to 5 to, to view some of the things that Matthew is talking about and this ends the formal part of the evening, but I hope you can join us for refreshments in the foyer. And John and Victoria have kindly agreed to sign 
uh, copies of Living with the Locals, mm -hmm. which is available from the library's bookshop with a 10% discount, which I know I've already told you. And also copies of his previous book, um, <laughs> True Light and Shade. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My commission is not. Can, can I just say thank you too, Susan, yeah. and also thanks yeah. to the library for, on behalf of me and Vicky, and also JP, the Black George Negus. <laughs> 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 thank you. Thank you.